0: Hey, welcome back to another episode of Keepin' Cozy. Today we're speaking with General David Petraeus, who's the former CIA director, as well as a four-star general. We talk to him a little bit about his military career, as well as his work at the CIA. We also talk about general career advice and leadership advice he'd give to college students. So please be sure to like, comment, and subscribe, and share with anyone who you think may find this interesting. Also, for the first time ever, please be sure to check out our sponsor, Cured. This week's sponsor of Keeping Cozy is Cured, Inc. Cured is a Boston-based social eating venture that reimagines the charcuterie experience. Cured creates high-quality, handmade artisanal charcuterie buckets, boxes, and cones delivered right to your door. Cured is a centerpiece and main attraction for any event so lucky to have it. Be sure to check out their website and Instagram links in the description box below. Thank you and I hope you enjoy the episode. love to yep. welcome you to uh, Keepin' Cozy. Thank you so much for being here. Pleasure is mine. Thanks. Uh, I, so I just want to start by asking, you know, are you keeping well? Everything, you know, good? I am.
1: I am. Thanks, Jacob. Uh, as busy as ever, uh, if anything, perhaps busier because of the accessibility that's afforded with Zoom and MS Teams and all the other applications and so forth that we use to stay connected. And you are accessible to anywhere in the world uh, with those, and and I have been.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the first question I want to ask you is about um, political, just in general, distrust within the system. So Harvard University's Institute of Politics has shown that college students have a record high level of distrust with the present power structure. As someone who's been in positions of power within that same system, how do you respond to the distrust between young people and the system that you know is is around right now?
1: Well, my response would be certainly to say that this is a concern uh, it is significant, uh, needless to say, uh, a society functions better if its citizenry uh, supports and believes in the institutions that, if you will govern them uh, and that leads me to my second point, which would be that Uh, Clearly, it's incumbent on those who are in government and in these institutions to regain the trust uh, of young people in particular, uh, but also of the citizenry writ large. Uh, Again, that's really quite an imperative. And the only way to do that uh, is through a combination of communication uh, that demonstrates... uh, openness, honesty, integrity, um, acknowledges uh, falling short, perhaps also recognizes uh, achievements, uh, but again is is forthright. Uh, And then needless to say, what is most important are the actions uh, of the institutions, which at the end of the day uh, have to be uh, of the type that engender trust and confidence and support.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and you know, on that note, what do you think the role is of political polarization for that increasing level of distrust?
1: Well, the polarization that we have seen in uh, the United States political system, uh, the political gridlock that has been a feature of Washington uh, in recent years, uh, other factors are what have led to At at least in considerable part, uh, the sense that institutions aren't worthy of our trust. Uh, And again, that's particularly the case, as you noted, uh, with young people. And so, once again, it's incumbent on those in the institutions and the institutions collectively uh, to act in a way that regains the trust of the people and that regains their confidence and their support.
0: Yeah. And, you know, as someone who is in, you know, as an incumbent, former incumbent of those positions of power, do you think it's easy to bring about change? Or is that something that is going to be met with a bit of resistance?
1: Well, it depends on change in what, um, I mean, if it's change in terms of trying to exhibit, uh, to, to, uh, regain the trust of the people uh, if it's those actions uh, it depends on the institution it depends how far it has strayed if you will from what uh, the people believe it should be doing in in a forthright um, impartial uh, way grounded in our legal system and the rights that we all enjoy Uh, look we've as a soldier as a commander uh, when we launched the surge in iraq uh, we had lost the support of the iraqi people Um, it's predictable that at some point any army of liberation becomes an army of occupation yeah and we were very much seen as an army of occupation because the mistakes that inevitably are made in combat uh the uh, the ways that you irritate the people with your vehicles on their roads and sometimes knocking down their wires and and all the rest of this, not to mention occasional uh, actual combat and so forth. Uh, All of this obviously accumulates over time. And again, the people, unless you are providing some real social good for them, the most important of which is, of course, security, which we were not prior to the surge. Uh, If you recall that Baghdad alone, the capital of Iraq, was seeing 53 dead civilian bodies due to violence every 24 hours that's out of control so we had to regain the support of the people we had to you know this word hearts and minds that's what this is all about and you do that by certainly conveying what it is we intend to do that we will strive to do which is to secure you uh, to a much better uh, degree than has been the case uh, over the past whatever 612 more months um, and that our actions will in fact uh, produce that security that will then enable uh, re-establishment of local markets repair of damaged infrastructure the war damage uh, restoration of basic services to the best level that is possible given the iraqi resources um, reopening schools health clinics uh, and all the rest of that so there is some similarity between where we were then uh, and uh, what we're discussing here, where folks have lost faith in the system. yeah, and the only way to engender faith in that system is by meriting it. It's by taking the actions uh, that are also backed up certainly by uh, forthright rhetoric and discussion and and so forth. but you you can't spin yourself out of this you can't you know if if a situation is truly dire we used to say you can't put lipstick on a pig uh it's still ugly uh what you have to do is is change the situation Uh, and you know when you have a really bad day you don't go out to the podium and say well you know we reopened three soccer stadiums today and the soccer leagues are going again and, and we're hoping the swimming pools will soon be filled for the summer and all the rest of this oh by the way we we had 150 Iraqi civilians killed in three market bombings. No, you go out to the podium and you say, we had a horrible day today. Um, Here's what took place to the best of our understanding. Here's what we believe we should learn from this. This is what we will do to reduce the risk of this kind of uh, bombing in the future. Uh, we un- we appreciate your support for the restrictions that this will require. For example, no vehicles in the marketplaces. These are enormous, you know, half mile to a mile long markets of just street with shops on either side going back several different roads. Yeah. So, um, again, that is a bit of an illustration of what it is that is required. Uh, it starts, again... you you just can't have a public relations campaign. That's not what gets you out of a situation where you've lost the trust of the people. Uh, It's by your actions, but certainly those actions also need to be explained. There needs to be again, the kind of forthright dialogue with those who are dissatisfaction with those who have lost trust uh, with those who need to regain confidence. Uh, But it's a difficult process it's never completely uh, achieved uh, you're never going to get again 100% for uh, anything uh, in a democracy but you certainly can get a much better degree uh, of confidence and of support than was demonstrated in the survey that you referenced that was done at the institute of politics for harvard
0: yeah yeah well kind of staying on that topic of conversation you know um the term G-man, which is used uh, to define a government man, and back in the time of J. Edgar Hoover, it was used to define someone who was tall, lean, straight, and white, with an easy-to-pronounce last name. During this time of increased you know, racial and social awareness, um, how do you see both the military and federal agencies making progress to change that narrative of what it means to be a G-man?
1: Well, I think that really all elements of government uh, have had various programs in which they have tried to move their workforce to uh, a position where it is more representative of what the general population is than it was previously Uh, that takes time Uh, i am most familiar with the initiatives that were taken in the u.s army needless to say where i spent 37 years And I think by and large, there have been considerable steps uh, forward in that regard, but certainly there is still work that needs to be done. But it began with a recognition um, that there were obstacles, there were institutional challenges to those who didn't look like me. Um, By the way, it's the same, of course, for women serving uh, in the military. It's the same for gays and others. Uh, So, this was an issue for those of the color of skin, probably at various times, religion, um, social orientation, uh, sexual orientation and so forth and so on. Um, and the institution has to work through uh, the, the policies, the actions, uh, the in some cases, the laws, regulations uh, that were keeping Everyone from being able to have the same opportunities. Yes. Um, certainly, when I entered the military, I don't think there was any uh, African American four-star general in the army. There, there were off and on, yeah. uh, but now there's almost always one or two. And um, and again, the same with women, and same with uh, again a variety of other categories of individuals who can meet all of the physical requirements for whatever field, branch, uh, skill. Uh, and therefore should be able to compete uh, fairly with everyone else. Now in the military, in the Army in particular, this took uh, programs like affirmative action uh, so that individuals like Colin Powell would have a a fair shot. Uh, Keep in mind that when he was initially serving, and a lot of our bases for the infantry uh, are in the South, uh, so he would go to Fort Benning, Georgia, Um, And he was obviously not treated equally when he was outside the gate of Fort Benning, Georgia in Columbus uh, with that of a, again, his white counterpart. Uh, So there were, again, there were plenty of obstacles and plenty of challenges uh, for those of different color skin, again, uh, gender orientation and so forth. And by and large, the the military has done, I think, um, an impressive job Uh, In providing truly equal opportunity. That's really what this is about. Um, And there have been numerous programs to ensure that that was the case. Um, And and I think, again, there has been uh, impressive uh, accomplishment in that particular regard. Um, Certainly at at, at the CIA, we worked very hard at CIA in some ways, and the FBI, by the way, were ahead of the military in certain categories. Um, but even there, again, it was a challenge to attract African Americans, uh, and you really have to work at it.
2: And yeah. if you don't have
1: any role models in the upper ranks, yeah, because if you really think about why do we do what it is that we do, you know, why did I go to West Point? People constantly ask me, well, gosh, as I think about it, I wanted to be like Mike. In my case, yeah. Mike was Michael Jordan, it was Mike who was a cadet at West Point. Uh, You know, half of the people to whom I delivered newspapers every morning when I was a kid uh, were either West Point graduates serving at West Point or
2: uh,
1: West Point graduate retirees. Um, Several of my teachers in high school were, because again, we live seven miles from West Point. Yeah. uh, But a number of the teachers were retired former professors at West Point. Our high school soccer coach had actually coached the Army team to a national championship uh, in soccer, I think, during the World War II years.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, and here he was, you know, he just was looking for something to do. He was a dollar a year. He wanted to, later in life, after retiring as a full colonel, uh, yeah. to, to, to coach and contribute in the community. And by golly, we won the championship. Um, so, you know, I've admired what these individuals represented. I associated that with their their particular association with West Point, uh, whether graduates or serving or what have you, um, and realize I wanted to be like that. Well, if there's no one like you in the upper echelons of an organization, um, how in the world do you, where is the role model who inspires you? Where is Mike? Yeah. Um, and uh, because again, we do an awful lot about uh, those people we admire, we want to be like them. And yeah. so we need to ensure that there are people like them, uh, again, in these various uh, government institutions, but also in the private sector. Yeah. And I'm obviously a partner in a very large a global investment firm. And it's one that has, I think, quite commendable initiatives to ensure that the boards of all the companies that we own have at least two uh, individuals who are, again, not white males, um, essentially. Um, so. You have to just really, with enormous amount of determination and just relentless uh, push and yep. leadership, uh, to to ensure that there is truly equal opportunity. Yeah, uh, and it starts in our country, frankly, with you know, is our education system fair to all the people? Do we leave behind uh, various segments of our population, et cetera, et cetera? So. there's lots of areas that we need to address in this regard. Uh, We're by no means uh, close to being where we need to be, but we have made huge strides in a number of the uh, federal institutions, at least, with which I've been associated over the years.
0: Yeah, and I guess, you know, just to ask a question off of that, um, you kind of mentioned some affirmative action policies, and do you think that there is a group of people who could feel as though that they're not moving forward because they don't happen to be part of a marginalized group of people and sure. how would you react to that? There, are, there,
1: have been, there have been numerous legal cases. Again, none of these is ever embraced by all segments of society. Um, if you are if you are a f- taking affirmative action for certain groups in society, there may be some others who feel that they don't get uh, the advantage uh, of others. And again, this is the kind of uh, discussion, debate, uh, policy, and so forth that has been uh, challenged in courts. Uh, there's lots of litigation. Again, Harvard's admissions practices uh, and the other Ivy's admissions practices have often been challenged. Um, and again, that's fine. That's how we make progress in our country. It's how we resolve issues. But But to come back to the very beginning, no one is ever not everyone is ever going to embrace everything that's just to be understood The question is again are we reasonably doing the right thing in this regard uh given the history that we have um and given the fact that there were historic obstacles challenges and and barriers in some cases uh to so many actions that those that look like me take for granted Um, look at the emphasis this year on uh, voting opportunities. Um, And again, lots of litigation around all of that. Um, We're a country of a rule of law, uh, and that's how you resolve these kinds of issues. But I think it's very understandable that some others will feel that that's not right, uh, and that it's worth challenging. But, But, you know, there was a great Obviously, I went to graduate school and and did a PhD in a combination of international relations and economics. And in the international relations theory, you have these various schools of thought. And I remember one of the best essays I ever read uh, by a fairly obscure uh, British uh, uh, political uh, theorist, if you will, uh, Martin White, who wrote in an essay The answer is not to be found in either of these schools of thought, I think it was realism and idealism, but rather in the debate among them. And I think that's the the approach to have in the back of one's mind. As you see again, neither of these schools of thought is going to be remotely perfect. Um, what emerges from the debate, the discussion, sometimes quite heated, the legal cases, whatever, Uh, is what will propel us forward. And that is indeed where the answer, I think, is to be found. And again, public opinion will sway back and forth, uh, depending on uh, essentially the reality on the ground, as an infantryman would say.
0: Yeah. So, well, I guess, you know, just to conclude, how do you lead um, knowing that you can't find a perfect solution or that the answer comes through the debate, not through either of the theories? you engage in the debate.
1: And a leader obviously has a bit of a a megaphone uh, with which to do that. A leader has organizations uh, with which to do that, noting that, of course, even within the organization, there may be dissatisfaction or discomfort or rejection of what it is that has been decided. Um, But what you do is you try to make uh, the most logical and thoughtful case possible for the particular direction which you believe, uh, the organization or institution needs to move, um, and then hope that you have been sufficiently persuasive to, again, attract support from a sufficient number of people, yeah. um, so that you can move forward in the direction that you believe is right. Uh, and that's, again, that's what leaders have to do, um, If you think about strategic leaders, um, you have four critical tasks. You've got to get the big ideas right. That's what we're talking about here. Uh, You have to communicate those effectively throughout the breadth and depth of the organization, the institution, perhaps the country. Uh, You have to oversee the implementation of the big ideas. Uh, That involves what we normally think of as leadership. It's the example, it's the energy, it's the drive, it's the how you spend your time, it's the metrics, it's the hiring, firing, rewarding, uh, and all the rest of that. And then there's a fourth step, which we sometimes forget or overlook, and that is to refine the big ideas and do it again and again and again. And this process is continuous. Uh, It is one that we should be aware of. I mean, this is a very good intellectual construct for strategic leadership say, what I was privileged to exercise during the surge in Iraq or yeah. surge in Afghanistan. Um, but it's also applicable to the kinds of issues that we're discussing. I mean, there are debates about the big ideas. And, and for my uh, experience, I was never able to sit under the right tree and get hit on the head by Newton's apple fully formed. I, you know, I'd get hit on the head by a seed of a big idea or a kernel, and then you have to shape it it's an iterative process of gradually building out the big idea which is generally best done very inclusively very openly very transparently because you want everyone at the very least to feel that they've at least had a chance to contribute to the debate to the discussion Um, you don't want people feeling that they're outside the tent because you know what people do if they are outside the tent Um, so you want them inside the tent Uh, And then as you finally resolve the big idea, which strategic leaders uniquely do have to do eventually, you do have to make decisions, then you've got to try to communicate it as effectively as you can, then you have to oversee the implementation, and then you determine how to refine it and do it again and again and again. Um, And again, it's a wonderful intellectual construct to apply to any number of uh, issues, tasks, and certainly to strategic leadership. And for what it's worth, There's a website that we built. I was a fellow at the Belfer Center at Harvard for six years, and we built a website on that subject uh, using the Surge in Iraq as an example, but also Netflix with Reed Hastings and some other uh, examples as well. And and think about that process, that if you don't get that fourth task right, you can end up like Kodak, which had reportedly had over 2,000 patents on digital photography. Yeah, but didn't change the big ideas rapidly enough and it sort of got overtaken by other companies that chose to embrace digital photography sooner than did Kodak.
0: Yeah and you kind of mentioned um, you know you have to eventually make a decision uh, and my question to, to, to that is what about the people who disagree with you even when you do go to make that decision? Sure. The guys well,
1: who are left you behind. Want you want them to feel, at the very least, you want them to feel that they had an opportunity to express their view. Look, I, there were presidents of either party who didn't embrace fully what it was that I advised, uh, but I, I always was satisfied that I would had an opportunity to have dialogue with them, to lay out the reasons why I recommended a certain course of action. Um, and even if they didn't pick it because of course they do have much broader concerns than did the commander of a of a single battlefield or a single country um, you know they've got the entire world they have politics it's they do have to worry about that they have fiscal deficits strain on the force opportunity cost uh, congressional uh, dealings alliance dealings all of this they have to take into account in a way that is much more pressing than the considerations that I Looked at, uh, and they understood that that the basis of what I was providing to them was the facts on the ground and the mission they'd given us and our troop to task analysis and so forth. Yeah. So again, it, as long as you feel that you've had an opportunity to contribute, to be in part of the discussion, which is why I said that that process of determining the big ideas should be as inclusive, uh, as open, as transparent as you can possibly make it. I mean, when we published the counterinsurgency field manual, um, when I was a three star, between the three and four star tours in Iraq, mm-hmm. there were people that were critical of it. Um, but what we did is we reached out to them, and we said again, okay, why are you criticizing this? I mean, there was one person who's a respected individual um, who said, it, it's, it's too soft, you're not doing enough about killing the enemy. So we did a word search. And we came back and we said, Well, kill is in there. It's on average one per page. Is that not enough for you? Uh, Well, then sort of grudgingly, but you have to engage them. And we would bring them out to Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, which is where the headquarters for that assignment was, uh, and sit down with them and then hear their concerns, engage them. We didn't convince every last one of them, but we certainly convinced more than we would have had we not done that. And at the very least, they would say, Hey, at least they listened to me. Uh, At least I had a chance to offer my criticisms. And that's again what what leaders have to do and certainly those who are leading institutions uh, owe it to the people who are affected by those institutions.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, the second half of the podcast is uh, more focused on specifically advice for students. As someone who's in charge of KKR's Global Institute, (laughs) Um, how do you see students' lives changing due to increased global connectivity?
1: Well, certainly there is an opportunity, you know, the information of the entire world is is at your fingertips um, or at the end of your mouse or whatever uh, device you're using. And so that's an extraordinary difference over even when I was in graduate school just a few decades ago, where you had to go to the library, you took notes by hand, and I mean, we just were getting email when I think I finally had my dissertation approved. So this is a vast change. But the challenge now is that there's so much information out there that you have to be, you have to understand, first of all, um, what is it, what's the orientation of the source of this information? It's a little bit about consuming media. Yeah. I mean, we should be very conscious of the, the orientation of different media. Um, I mean, it's pretty accepted right now that you know, if you wanna, if your views are aligned with one particular, say political party in this country, you'll watch one cable news network and if they were orient, oriented with the other one, then you'll watch another cable news network. And then there may be another that's sort of in the middle along with the uh, main channels that we always used to have decades ago uh, but the same is certainly true of whatever social media we're consuming. And and we have to be very conscious uh, that you can end up in in silos, uh, in echo chambers. Uh, so, that, you know, I've actually felt that w- there should be some kind of course on media consumption, just as I strongly believe we need to resume more uh, education on civics, uh, because I think that, in many cases, those who have had to study for the citizenship exam understand the branches of our government and the responsibilities Mm -hmm. of different institutions better than some who uh, gain citizenship by being born here.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. do you think that's something that should happen at the university
1: or (coughs) or earlier? I think it's probably at all levels. I think it's something that has to be reinforced. Um, And again, it's something we should be very conscious of. Um, You know, it's very easy to again just listen to those voices that uh, are similar in thought or orientation to yours, uh, but obviously you're missing part of the debate if that's the case. So I think it's a pretty good idea to switch back and forth between channels, social media, uh, and so forth. Um, Again, certainly there will be those that may be so far out on either side that um, they, in your view, are not worth listening much to. But, but again, I think you need to ensure that you're getting all views. And I do think that this is a huge strength. Um, <clears throat> I remember going to graduate school, and even though I'd served overseas already uh, in Cold War Europe, um, <clears throat> I found there this, it was what I called an out of my intellectual comfort zone experience, which is what I think all students should seek because they're incredibly developing. <clears throat> what I found were seriously bright individuals uh, at, at Princeton who saw the world through a very different prism uh, than that through which I viewed the world. Yeah. Um, and it was a real intellectual wake-up call. Uh, and I'd come just from our staff college, which we had about 1,100 students in the class. Yeah. Um, and you know we thought a serious debate was actually something that was like this. Uh, And, you know, you go to a civilian graduate school and the debates are like this. Uh, The differences are really profound. And by the way, again, these are thoughtful, reasoned, very, very bright individuals. And it's, it's pretty salutary to have that kind of experience. So when people ask me, when I was in the two-star tour in Iraq, when we did the invasion of Iraq and I was privileged to command the 101st Airborne Division, then we went north to Mosul and Nainua province, and things went pretty well for us, um, in parts because a lot of us had done some of what we were doing before in places like Central America or Haiti or Bosnia or Kosovo or what have you, Yeah, uh, had studied it, uh, had trained for it uh, and so forth, um, but, what had really made the difference for me was this experience of civilian graduate school. So I wasn't stunned to find people who again worshiped uh, through a a different, and by the way you had many different faiths. Mosul is the melting pot of the of the Middle East. It's where all of the different civilizations uh, fault lines came together. So you had not just Sunni Arabs and Shia Arabs, you had Shia Turkmen, you had uh, Christians of various different faiths, you had uh, uh, Shabak, you had, again, all of these different Kurds of, again, different faiths and different political parties, Yazidis, and on and on and on. And that's before you even get to the political parties, the districts, and the other entities that comprise a society. And so, again, having had that civilian graduate school experience and also having seen a counterinsurgency briefly in Central America, having served as the force operations officer for the United Nations force in Haiti, not the U.S. force, uh, although we had a U.S. component underneath the the headquarters, and then to spend a year in Bosnia to see other uh, uh, endeavors in the Balkans, all of these were hugely formative intellectually for me. But at the end of the day, it was back to this graduate school experience and very basic concepts of political philosophy such as you know majority rules but minority rights uh, and then free market economics Um, and we actually because keep in mind if you're in the occupation force commander which is what we were for that initial period um, that meant i was the executive legislative and judicial for nainawa province and northern iraq um, in a very very challenging location yeah. So, you know, for students, constantly look for the out of your intellectual comfort zone experience, constantly go where you are in the minority. I went to Princeton, in fact, instead of Harvard, because Harvard had a huge number of fairly senior officers who were there for the War College fellowships, nearly 20 of them. I was just a captain, and I thought, why would anybody at Harvard pay any attention to a captain if you've got all these lieutenant colonels and colonels who have actually done policymaking jobs as outer office people or what have you? as opposed to a company commander, uh, former company commander or something like that. So uh, again, it was really a great experience in that regard. It's something that I commend to, to students. In addition to just basic analytical skills, uh, communication skills, writing, briefing, and so forth, when I taught at the Honors College of the City University of New York for three and a half years, I realized that. what I needed most of all to convey to them was, of all things, how to write a policy memo, how to brief it. These were very, very bright students that had to compete. Fierce competition to be among those that are in the honors college, and then they had to compete to be in my course. They all had a full scholarship and various other support, Uh, but I recognized that, again, they hadn't, in many cases, maybe half of them had not had to write actual policy memos or brief them. And so we gave a class in the very first day. One of the most successful students I ever had, who happened to be in the first semester, would come back and he would actually teach how to write a memo and how to give a briefing. And he did it by giving a briefing. Um, So those are not skills to be be diminished. Uh, These are very important skills. I don't care what field you end up in. You can be in the hardest of sciences and engineering and STEM and all the rest of that. At the end of the day, you're still at some point going to have to convey ideas, communicate uh, principles and the results of research and analysis. uh, And you have to be able to do that effectively.
0: Yeah. And, you know, just listening to you uh, answer that question, um, you know, it seems as though you've had a career where you've been able to go and travel the world due to your work with the military. Do you think that's something that's going to be normal for civilians in the future because of the increased uh, connectivity? Well, it has
1: been, certainly. Um, clearly, we don't know what the long-term implications of the pandemic will be. My suspicion is that there will be enormous pent-up demand for tourism and travel. Uh, but that we may not travel quite as much for business as we used to because there will be a bit more of a hybrid model to yeah. some of the conferences. Look, I had the craziest of travel schedules until mid-March. I would, I would usually visit, stop in 25 different countries or so thereabouts, give or take a few. Uh, some of those, as many as six to eight times, say the UK, every major city in America. And you had these crazy uh, schedules where you'd work all day in New York through a dinner, you'd race out to Kennedy International, you get the last flight to London, you'd yeah. arrive, go to a hotel, shower, change, go to a, a meeting, a conference, do a lunch with somebody and race back to Heathrow, yeah. catch a flight back to New York so you can do something after dinner in New York. Again, this was, this is, now I look at it and say it's lunacy. Why <laughs> couldn't I just do this by, again, by Zoom or teleconferencing? Uh, But in in the pre-pandemic, we felt that we had to be there. I I think that the new normal, the normal that we arrive at after the uh, pandemic is finally in our rearview mirror and after the uh, economic downturn has uh, come back, that that new normal is not going to be the old normal. I think there will be modifications on it. And I think one of those will be that we may not do quite as much uh, even domestic much less international business travel. But again, we'll, we'll see what evolves. And certainly there will be the opportunities to travel fairly inexpensively as there were before the pandemic uh, for to see the world. And I think that opportunity is very much still going to be there.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, bringing it back to specifically college students, um, you often say that luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. However, the class of 2020 has found their years of preparation uh, has met an economy lacking of the traditional opportunities that were afforded to you know every other year. What advice would you give to this unlucky generation?
1: Well, I mean, the obvious advice is to make the most of the opportunities that are still there. Uh, the fact is that, that the pandemic and the resulting economic downturn and the steps we've taken to try to uh, contain the spread of the pandemic, reduce it, and so forth. Um, that These have created new opportunities. Um, you know, it's a fact that certain sectors have done much better during the pandemic than they would have uh, had there not been a pandemic. And then there are many sectors, uh, certainly again, the hospitality industry, tourism, travel, uh, big entertainment venues. I mean, there's a huge number of the services area, uh, including the airline travel, uh, that these have not, have they been hurt very badly by this, and it's not clear that they will come back fully to what they were before the pandemic. So recognize where the new opportunities are, um, do what you can to prepare to make the most of those uh, so that you can indeed be seen as being lucky. Um, Yes, look, luck does play uh, a role. Uh, There's no question that timing does matter um you know there but for a few months either way i might not have been the commander of the 101st airborne division which would mean that i wouldn't have gone back right after that tour as a three star and i wouldn't have gone and you know and eventually wouldn't have been the person whose name they settled on uh when the situation was very dire to to try to retrieve a a a very desperate uh, situation in iraq i mean we were on the edge of a full-blown sunni shia Civil War and Ambassador Crocker, the greatest diplomat I think of his generation, and the greatest with whom I was ever privileged to soldier. Um, it, and we were in a, again, a pretty, pretty difficult situation at the outset. And a lot of people will say, "Gosh, he was lucky." You know, it's it's easy to take over when you're really all the way down because there's only one way, and it's back up. Actually, not so as i told congress it's going to get worse before it gets better and the bad guys are going to fight us for these areas that we have to get back into we have to secure the people and we can only do that by living with them and we're going to have to fight to reverse all the consolidation on big bases that we've done over the course of the last year year and a half or two years Um, so again luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity all you can do is prepared to the best of your ability uh, and then certainly hope that there will be some timing some opportunities uh, what have you that present themselves on which you can capitalize because of the preparation that you you have done Uh, and that is again the definition of luck and certainly uh, if one prepared for the old normal um, you may not have been prepared for what the emerging new normal opportunities will be. So recognize that and figure it out. I, look, you know, our firm uh, in mid-March, as with all the others in New York, shut down, closed our offices, sent us all home with an iPhone, an iPad and a laptop that had again, Zoom and MS Teams and all these other applications and, and programs that enabled us to continue to communicate uh, quite effectively. And it took us a week or two to just sort out what is our new battle rhythm, our new schedule, what are our activities going to be, how are we going to operate? You know, can we, will we have the confidence to invest large sums of money in companies whose CEOs we may not have met in recent weeks or months as this went on? Yeah. Um, And lo and behold, we've figured out how to do that as have all other firms and, and all other institutions have figured out again, how to operate in this particular uh, set of circumstances. In some cases, people having to continue the truly key and essential workers for frontline individuals in this particular fight against a pandemic, and then others who could perform their normal duties without being in an office, uh, without traveling the way that we used to. Uh, but, But again, now taking advantage of the opportunities As I mentioned, you know, I I said I'd be happy to do that event in Mumbai the next time I'm in Mumbai. Well, that trip got canceled. So what did they say? Well, why don't you do it by Zoom? You know, just get up a little early so it's not too late for us out here, and you can do that. I did. It's the same day that the folks in Berlin had scheduled me, and we did that by Zoom. And then you know we did one in New York that night with a bunch of other calls and Zooms in between during the day. So. We've all adjusted uh, the question is how effectively you know can you adjust? Is it possible many of us i mean it's quite a privilege to be able to 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 do your job uh, in the way that we are, frankly compared to those whose jobs have literally gone away uh, yeah. in so many of these sectors in the services uh, side of our economy, uh, as we mentioned, if you're in the hospitality industry, the travel and tourism. Uh, all the rest of that.
0: Yeah. Um, You know, just going back to your specific career, what were you uh, most afraid of when you first started out?
1: Well, I think what any person embarking on a a career is worried about is whether you will measure up. um, Can I, if you will, achieve a degree of success? Can I progress? Can I uh, demonstrate what is necessary? Um, You know, can I inspire a platoon of 43 non-commissioned officers and enlisted men, paratroopers in my case? Um, How will they react to me? Um, Will they dismiss me as some wet behind the ears West Point second lieutenant? How do you establish yourself in their eyes? How do you build, uh, again, a reputation, a a record of achievement and all the rest of this? Um, You know, can I compete? Um, while recognizing that you don't just compete to be the best in an individual activity all the time, you also often compete to be the best team player. And look, I think anyone who doesn't have those nagging doubts in the back of his or her mind um, isn't really being realistic. Uh, You should never, ever, uh, you might be quietly confident, I think I can do this, but it shouldn't be I'm certain I can do it because there is no certainty yeah so I I think that's the way to approach uh, as you start a new career and you know I've changed professions literally and obviously there were doubts as I drove up to the CIA headquarters for the first time not in uniform I I decided that it was important I sat with President Obama and we agreed that I should retire you could actually stay in uniform and do that job and others have but we thought, both thought it would be best to do that and also to leave behind all of the talent that I'd attracted over the years that used to uh, thankfully go with me to different jobs and so forth, often on short notice, such as the one to Afghanistan, which was you know, a week's notice. So um, again, there should always be that question and it's part of what spurs us. I mean, it's part of what drives you uh, that you want to measure up and that you're gonna do your very best to do that. But I mean, there's also, you do sometimes have to also recognize that all you can do is the best you can do. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, so just to conclude, two more questions. Um, as someone who's faced his fair share of professional knocks, how are you able to not let yourself succumb to negative situations?
1: Well, I, don't, I mean, you succumb to negative situations. You are in a negative situation. Okay. Um, and the question is, how do you deal with that? And Look, anybody who leads any really big organization, especially in war, in combat, um, that organization, individuals in that organization will make some, in some cases, catastrophic mistakes, um, strategically significant uh, mistakes. You will suffer setbacks. You're going to suffer tactical reversals. Um, You're going to sustain enormous casualties and, and all the rest of this. Um, and you you might feel at a point, and we did early on as we were trying to get back into these neighborhoods to secure them and the bad guys are fighting us. You feel as like you're a boxer, you know, with your hands up over your head and yeah. you're just getting pummeled all over and you're in the corner and you can't get out. Eventually you do. Uh, you have to have a degree of resilience and then you'll make mistakes and I did. Uh, and when you do that, um, you know, You've been knocked to the canvas or you knocked yourself to the canvas, you've got to take stock of where you are, um, understand what transpired, uh, learn from it, um, take the remedial actions, uh, apologize to folks if that is warranted, uh, but eventually you've got to get up off the canvas and dust yourself off and you know, pick up your rucksack again and, and resume the march. Um, that is much easier said than done. Um, and, uh, you know, that can be extraordinarily challenging and ex- excruciating uh, to experience. But that's obviously the sort of the intellectual explanation of what it is that you have to do. And again, anybody that leads a large organization is going to experience that. I mean, that this life and leadership are not about responding to victories and successes and you know it's not full of endless high five moments um, again there are setbacks shortcomings mistakes missteps uh, some that you make some that others make for whom you're responsible um, I remember one of our soldiers used pages from the Quran at, for target practice every Every base, small base that we had always had a 25-meter range so you could keep your, the zero of your weapon constantly really zeroed. And yeah. so we put a lot of premium on that. Well, for some unknown reason, he decided to put the pages up there and shot at them. And, of course, a, a local national worker found that and rightly reported it. And the next thing you knew, I was apologizing to the prime minister of the country on camera. And yeah. the president of the United States was calling him. Apology. Uh, Those things happen. Uh, You try always to mitigate them. I mean, you try to ensure that your organization is sensitive to the context that you're in and the circumstances and everything else. But uh, again, as I said, life is not full of endless successes and high five moments. And the measure of leaders, I don't think, is how you respond to success, it's how you respond to setbacks, failures, and your organizations and your own mistakes
0: yeah yeah so i guess you know kind of to end um what is it like becoming a successful person or becoming an accomplished person and what made you most fulfilled
1: i i i would (laughs) suspect it's an interesting question i'm not sure it's one i've had before but um i suspect that most folks who have achieved a degree of success of i don't know fame or notoriety or whatever it may be um would say that they're deathly afraid of that all going away uh and they try harder i mean think about people who are at the top of their game in any walk of life and it's it's always it's not You know, what did you do a decade or five years ago or last year? Is what have you done lately? Uh, Think about that in the sports world. Think about it in the investment world. Think about it in the academic world. What was your latest book? Oh, gosh, 10 years ago? You haven't done anything since then? So I think there's probably, once again, it may give you a degree of confidence. It may give you certainly a platform. Uh, It might give you a degree of receptiveness, um, welcome, or what have you certainly might get a fair number of invitations but but at the end of the day you you know that you're only as good as your last game you're only as good as your last again job you're only as good as your last investment your last uh written project whatever it may be um and so i think that's you know how i would describe um being at a reasonably you know high level of of achievement and then, you know, what gives you, well, there's different, many, many different elements that, you know, give you, I don't know, satisfaction, a sense of achievement. I mean, it can be family, it can be our grandkids that we have with one more on the way this week. Um, it can be uh, watching your kids uh, as they go forward into the world and, you know, and what a challenging world it is right now, but they figure out ways to, to do things. By the way, I'm also a, private venture capitalist invested in about I think it's 17 or 18 startups and I love watching again young these are strategic leaders by the way if you if you're the founder of a startup you are a strategic leader even if it's only a handful of people um and to see them it, it, that's exciting um to help them uh, is exciting um you know and then there's obviously various professional accomplishments there's physical accomplishments I mean there's It's, you know, no one can ever take away from you that you ran a marathon in two hours and 50 minutes and 50 seconds or whatever it was, um, or these other, you know, academic or professional achievements and so forth. Um, But at the end of the day, I mean, what mattered most um, in my profession during my time in it was actually the surge in Iraq. And uh, you know what an extraordinary privilege to to lead that together with Ambassador Crocker a, a true comprehensive civil military campaign with over 165,000 American men and women in uniform and tens of thousands of other uh, coalition members and 100,000 contractors and everything else um, in a desperate situation and which again they helped the Iraqis uh, reverse, uh, and gave them a whole new opportunity uh, in the wake of the toppling of the Saddam regime. And again, that was, a, was. A, I think, if you ask anyone who was part of that, or most, again, because as we discussed, you, you're never going to find universal agreement mm-hmm. with, with anything, but most of those who had participated in the surge felt that they were part of something very special, that it was a mission larger than self. That it was a privilege to perform that mission with others in uniform who felt the same way, um, and and frankly, that it was a privilege to do it at a time when Americans, even if they disagreed with the policies we were implementing, uh, all generally agreed uh, that they should appreciate and demonstrate gratitude for the service of those in uniform. So you know that was a pretty extraordinary experience. Um, it's it's very difficult to top that one frankly uh and to have been the one who was privileged at that time and then to do it again if you will in afghanistan very different circumstances very different context very different challenges um those were you know pretty extraordinary experiences and uh i'll always be grateful for having had those opportunities to serve uh, and to do so with others uh, who raised their hand and took an oath of service at a time of war, knowing that they were going to be deployed uh, to those war zones.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for your time, sir, and for your service to uh, the United States. And thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Well, the service was a privilege, as was being with you on your
2: podcast. Thanks.